This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's start the story on some great news. If, of course, you believe the source, the uh, Liberal government releasing the 2016-2017 first quarter finances. And we don't know specifically the numbers, but according to the Premier's office, the numbers show they are, in fact, better than expected. And they will balance the budget for next year. You may or may not recall, Ontario right now has a debt uh, over $300 billion, upwards of three. Three hundred and fifty billion uh, soon enough, but the deficit is down by around five point seven billion. It was at thirteen billion when when the premier took over for Dalton McGuinty. But the last budget numbers, you know, suggest that that number's on the way down. So my first question when I heard this announcement that hey we're going to balance the budget was why would they say that now? Oh yes, because we've just announced a by election. So I'm a little cynical, but maybe it doesn't bother you. And maybe you want to have a say on this. Did you even care if they balance the budget? This was, of course, a big campaign promise for Kathleen Wynne when she came in. Do you care if they balance the budget in time for the next election? Does it matter? 905-645-3221. Remember, it is always about what you don't see in the small print. Let's bring Catherine Swift on. She's with Working Canadians. She knows all about the numbers. And so, Catherine, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Ellen. Your first kind of reaction, uh, well, your first reaction when we tried to book you for an interview is, I think the woman answering the phones laughed, <laughs> <laughs> which is unusual, but uh, your reaction to kind of hearing that they will balance the budget. Well, I have to give this this government full marks for chutzpah, but boy, uh, they have been pathological liars about so very much, right back to the McGinty days. Um, and when I see, I, I don't, I don't believe this. The, I, I also, lo- I looked up the numbers they released today just to see. There's, there's nothing released for the fiscal year 2017-2018, which is when they say they're going to balance it. Um, we have the fiscal accountability officer, Stephen LeClaire, saying that they won't provide him with the underlying assumptions for their forecast. I mean, I'm an economist, so I, <laughs> when, you don't, when you hear they don't provide you with the underlying assumptions, you go, ding, 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 big trouble there, because you can make a slight you can you can tweak GDP growth. You can you know you can tweak a, a whole lot of numbers and suddenly arrive at a miraculous outcome. That if those numbers stay a little bit different, a couple of you know a couple of percentage points different, suddenly it's it's you know black not white. So I don't believe this for a minute. You said in your in your intro there about the by election. Yeah, that, that timing's just a tiny bit suspicious. And I, I believe these. I would I would much more believe these independent. Uh, entities like the financial accountability officer, um, he has said he can't get information on huge potential issues like the privatization of Hydro One, major infrastructure projects which we know tens of billions of dollars are going to be involved with, spending in healthcare, another massive spending envelope for the government. So these key areas, these key multi-billion-dollar areas, he can't get data on. Come on, uh, it, that's insane. The other thing, of course, is they're counting on getting $2 billion from the new uh, Enviro tax, the new mm. cap-and-trade tax, and so on. And that's not chump change either. But once again, you know, as, as you look at forecasts, they can be altered in a nanosecond. What I look at is the hard numbers. And the hard numbers are our debt provincially has skyrocketed under this government. It's over $300 billion. Uh, uh, various of these independent financial analysts have put it at $350 billion in the not-too-distant future. 
So debt does not continue to go up if you balance the budget. Those two things are are not compatible. They can't happen together. So I don't believe this. I do believe any government can fudge numbers. and uh, doesn't matter who they are. Any government can fudge numbers. I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, look, it was our sister station, 640, that tweeted it out. And I thought, oh, okay, so someone's been talking to someone in government, but they felt the need to put this thing out. Um, and, and look, it's a big campaign promise. I don't think folks understand it. I don't think they tune into it. The numbers are too big to comprehend. Um, they're just not numbers. We identify with a $16 orange juice, not 5 $6 billion and or $350 billion. And I don't, you know, so I think this kind of goes over people's heads. But how important is it? to balance a budget, given the fact that, as you say, every government can spin a number. I mean, these numbers are so spinnable to whatever you need. Absolutely. And the other thing that governments tend to do, particularly around election years, and of course 2017-18 is an election year, mm-hmm. um, is they will, they will cobble together a whole bunch of one-time wonders uh, where they, you know, they have an asset sale. They, and and they, if, if a private company pulled off the financial stunts the government, uh, de- governments do all the time, uh, they'd be in jail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Governments play fast and loose with the numbers. They can scramble around and find a few billion here and there, one-time things. But that is not a balanced budget. That's a one-time thing. But getting back to your, your question of why should people care, this is our future. This is our children. This is our grandchildren's future. Uh, whenever we have the kind of debt we have in a, a number of jurisdictions, but Ontario is by far the worst, and in a, in a province that used to drive, used to be the, the engine of growth for the country, and it's nothing of the sort now, um, that's, that's just our future taxes. That's a future depressed economy. That's future lack of jobs for Ontarians. And even people in the other, rest of the country should worry, too, because Ontario's a have-not province now. It's sucking money from the rest of the country when it should be contributing, given the potential strength of the industrial base, the economy, and so on. Another thing that worries me, a stat- statistic I saw just recently, over, over the last decade, the Ontario Liberals have hired people in the public sector at five times the rate the growth of private sector employment has taken place. The private sector is the only entity that generates prosperity. Government takes it to presumably provide services, often very inefficient, costly ones. But when we see that government sector growing and growing and growing, well, I've referred to it as the Grecian formula, because you can't continue to have government grow and grow and grow and incur the kind of debts we're seeing without the rubber hitting the road down, you know, sometime in the, in the not-too-distant future, I would predict, and, and, and negative, very negatively affecting everybody. But again, death, I mean, just imagine you as an individual, you have a house and you have a mortgage. That mortgage increases every year. It doesn't go down because you're paying it. It increases every year. Can you imagine that, what that would do to your personal finances? Nothing good. The bank would foreclose on you right fast. And that's what this government is doing. Their mortgage, our mortgage, because we're paying the freight, is increasing every year. So explain to me in layman's terms, because I'm not an economic specialist, so I see these numbers and I go, uh-huh, okay. What, it, what is the purpose of balancing the budget if you still have huge debt that would be, you know, 300 and $350 billion? So they've got the deficit, which is th- well, they say $5.7 billion now. It was up at $13 billion. But what's the difference between the two? And what does it matter if you get rid of the deficit part, the small part of it? Well, your deficit is, is uh, cumulatively, that is your debt. So, again, imagine you're individual. You've got one year you overspend $1,000 on your credit card. Oops, you don't pay it off. 
The next year you pay an, another, you overpay another thousand. Suddenly you've got an accumulated debt of two thousand. So that annual thing is your deficit, what you wrote that year. But you, when, when you add deficit after deficit, you end up with the, the debt, and, and of course it's growing like mad in Ontario. And I think a very good example to look at is the federal government, initially under the, the Liberals, under Jean Chrétien back in the 90s, and then subsequently under the Conservatives, uh, under Harper, they, um, they balanced the budget back in the late 90s, and then they started to reduce the debt. And by reducing the debt, once you balance it, you should literally be not adding, con- continuing to add to that debt. So once you balance it and ideally start to pay down that debt, you are getting rid of future liabilities, future taxes on our children, grandchildren, and so on, and, and of course, current as well, because we already pay super high taxes in Ontario. So that's a very, that's a very happy scenario. And if, if you could ever get rid of debt, Alberta did it, you may recall, mm-hmm. back in the day. They're back in the soup again, but sure. <laughs> Alberta under Ralph Klein got rid of their debt. And suddenly, in Ontario, for example, we pay almost $12 billion a year just to service the debt. If you didn't have that debt, you'd have $12 billion for good government services, those autism services, you know, people want so badly, uh, better health care, more MRIs, you know, better educational resources, and so on. When you're wasting $12 billion on debt service, that's a heck of a lot of foregone services. Yeah, it's very frustrating, but I think you rightly point out the financial accountability officer, which we've talked about here on the show a couple of times, who came out and said, um, we have no way to check these numbers because the Liberals are not giving them actual numbers. So if they do come out and they will campaign on this, Catherine, in this by-election, that they are on track to uh, balance the budget, and they'll certainly use it going into the campaign year, uh, without the financial accountability officer, it's their word versus the, the truth, essentially. Exactly. And of course, given their track record, uh, I, I wouldn't trust them, you know, as far as I could throw them. Uh, they've lied to us so many times. They've lied on financial issues. A lot of the reason the experts are saying that the so-called privatization of hydro happened was to conceal more data that they couldn't conceal when it was public. Uh, we've seen um, the we've seen emails deleted. We've seen that by-election in Sudbury back in the day. Uh, all kinds of skullduggery there. Of course, the you know the, the the underlings always end up getting fingered for these things when you gotta know darn well that the leaders, whether they be departmental heads, uh, whether they be the politicians themselves, right up to the premier's office, they are implicated in these things terribly. So, uh, frankly. <laughs> How anyone who's paying attention can be believing anything this government says is beyond me. You know, the other co- the concern I would have is if they do come out and say, OK, we've balanced the budget. Um, you know, what happens after that? Because as I understand, after 2018, uh, there are certain costs that are supposed to start skyrocketing. And that's hydro costs. That's, uh, you know, the, the, the true cap and trade costs. And so we're going to see those creeping up. So it is your feeling that, yes, they'll say we've balanced the budget, but then the reality is going to hit and we're going to start seeing increased costs? costs? Well, well, we already do see increased costs. We see dramatically increased costs in so many areas of our lives, and that's what's dampening economic growth in Ontario. But it, that gets back to something I was, I was mentioning briefly earlier, which is you can, bal- you, can bal- you can fool around and balance the budget for one year, but then the following year, you're back into deficit. So you can do some phony baloney short-term things, have an asset sale here. You might have some new revenue coming from some source or whatever. But that one-year balance does not truly a balanced budget make. And that's what I feel is, is happening here, even if they do succeed. And by the way, they are also building in some economic assumptions from what I've seen, which, again, the, the numbers are by no means transparent. But they have to be building in economic assumptions that if those assumptions aren't realized, 
they're going to be back into the tank, even in 2017-2018. So, you know, the, the whole notion of balancing a budget for one year, which they may pull off with all kinds of financial sleight of hand, uh, and then we're right back in the city. They, of course, hope to get reelected, which I think we'd be very foolish as Ontarians if we reelected them, given their financial malfeasance in so many ways and other malfeasance. Uh, then we'll be right back, in, I would predict, we'll be right back into great big deficits all over again and even more debt service costs. Yeah, and, and and we are assuming that the financial picture won't change and interest rates won't go up, Precisely. which then oh, we would be factor. absolutely yeah a slight uptick in interest rates, and all of a sudden those debt numbers get, just get drastically worse overnight. Yeah, and we've already been warned by Moody's, the credit agency, that uh, we've been downgraded. Um, and so, are they looking at these numbers? Are they getting the true numbers? And how can they base their information if if they don't have then numbers like the uh, financial accountability officer? Well, no, they they won't be getting they won't be getting any more data. But they have to go on best guesses, just like and they make their assumptions just like everybody else. But let's face it, those those bond rating agencies, they've got a long track record. And when they see worrisome things on the horizon, like the things like the debt to GDP ratio, it's around 40% in Ontario right now. That's a very high uh, percentage. Um, and and we, it, when they see debt projections of $350 billion in the not too, you know, when they look at all those fairly forecastable uh, numbers, that's why they're knocking down the credit rating. Sure. And so if I'm Patrick Brown and I am Andrea Horvath, uh, how are you playing this during the by-election? Because they don't know the true numbers, or do they? No, 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 they can't. Well, the, the government is hiding them by saying cabinet confidentiality, but that's a crock, frankly. Uh, other countries, other jurisdictions release the, these kind of numbers all the time. And so cabinet confidentiality is just a ruse. It, it has nothing to do with what's really happening here. So, no, I mean, the opposition wouldn't see them either because cabinet confidentiality, uh, as used as an excuse, would apply to them as well. But if I were, if I were Patrick Brown or Andrew Horvath, I'd be, I'd be leading with this one, playing it up big, talking about the financial accountability officer's, uh, you know, problems in trying to actually get at the data, talking about the track record of the government and the fact that uh, dishonesty is their hallmark. I mean, if there's one consistent theme, it's been dishonesty in so many different uh, ways in their policies during elections, uh, when they have things like uh, scandals like Orange, uh, e-health, uh, the, the gas plants, and on and on and on. Yeah. Well, buyer beware. Catherine, thank you. Always a pleasure. My pleasure, Alex. That's Catherine Swift of Working Canadians. And, and, and we can say that, I think, carte blanche of all politicians, of all stripes. So they all do their own spin. They all, you know, you should always read the fine print, no matter who it is or uh, which government it is. However, I think the track record of this particular uh, provincial government speaks volumes. And if the opposition can't do anything with this, then they don't deserve the top job. So they got their, they've got lots to work with. It's just a question of will the opposition work with it? We will, of course, stay tuned. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This next story is important. It's not the kind of thing that you send around at the office talking about, but this is something that we have not seen in Ontario for a very, very long time. And it's got some real implications. You know, imagine if you're sitting at your doctor's office for a 20-minute wait, half an hour wait. These are the kinds of uh, stories that might explain why that's happening. But there's a real showdown brewing between the doctors and the government agency they say is supposed to fight for them. And it's starting to reveal big issues facing your health care, including, you know, big cuts that the doctors say are going to affect you. 
Now, doctors can't strike in this province, so we don't often hear from them. They're the one part of the public sector that you just kind of forget about. So it's very unique to see thousands of them getting so vocal. And it all centers around this surprise tentative contract offered to them last month. And this was something that was offered after two years of having no deal. The OMA, which is the agency, gave doctors this deal. And the doctors claim it will not cover the rising overhead costs. It doesn't address things like weight lifts and could mean some serious cuts. They feel that they were left out of the process and that the regular checks and balances of negotiating uh, were skipped. So the doctors have to vote on this offer. But thousands now say they won't because they don't have details. So there are allegations coming out that the OMA is rigging the vote. But yesterday, an important Supreme Court ruling came out. And I touched upon it a little bit with Christina Blizzard. But it essentially told the government agency that it must provide an unbiased process so that Ontario doctors know exactly what they're voting for. So this is uncharted. It's confusing territory. But we're going to have both sides of this issue because I think it's important uh, to have both sides on it. Let's welcome Dr. Virginia Wally, who's the president of the OMA on. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Do I sum that up well? I mean, am I being fair? How do you characterize what's going on right now between your agency and the doctors? Well, our association, as you understand, represents uh, the 42,000 physicians in this uh, province who uh, are our members. Uh, We have a democratically elected uh, board of uh, directors, uh, 25 physicians from around uh, the province and representing all of the uh, various uh, specialty uh, groups. And they have uh, recommended... Uh, The tentative agreement uh, that has been negotiated uh, with the government uh, to our members. We believe the agreement, while not uh, perfect, provides stability for the uh, members, stability for patients in this province over the the next several years while our charter challenge goes forward uh, demanding binding arbitration for future negotiations. I don't want to go too far into the weeds on this because people in the they're driving around they won't understand it I won't understand it because it it tends to be quite confusing but there was an offer it comes up with an initial bump of 2.5% but doctors are saying this does not cut what we want it's not about getting a raise but this does not cover the overhead costs of off running an office paying staff hydro costs things like that so in essence, it's not really a raise. In fact, it's going to lead to some big cuts. You say what? In fact, this will not be a raise for individual physicians. What uh, the funding increases provide for is our increasing population in Ontario, the aging population in Ontario, and the new doctors that are coming into the system to serve the medical needs of uh, those uh, populations. We see, uh, we predict that utilization, so the number of services that our increasing population, our aging population will require over the next four years will increase at about 3.1% year over year. And the funding provided in this agreement, in fact, covers that off. Uh, The the agreement uh, provides the opportunity for our profession to uh, take up partnership again uh, with the government and co-manage the system in the best interests of patients. And, of course, nobody knows better uh, 
uh, how scarce uh, resources should be used in patients' best interest than uh, physicians. And that's exactly uh, why we're recommending this agreement to, to our members so that we can we can take up that leadership uh, role again in in the best interests of patients. Uh, doctors are mad, though. I mean, I'm not talking one or two. I mean, thousands of, of doctors uh, right, from right across the province are, are saying they're going to refuse this deal. So why are they so mad? Well, uh, we have been without an agreement for two years. I fully understand the frustration of members. I've been frustrated. Our board's been frustrated. I understand that some members are, are angry, uh, and that is, of course, uh, their right. But we are trying to take a, a balanced view of the agreement that's on offer. We're trying to balance uh, our own interests, uh, those of the system more broadly, and those of patients. And, and we believe that this, this agreement will provide us the stability that we haven't had uh, the last couple of years. You know, this, this, this province is, is behind many other jurisdictions in its redesign of the healthcare system and, and healthcare reform. And physicians, you know, have to be at the table to help uh, make the, the difficult decisions that will have to be made to improve the system on behalf of patients in the, in the years uh, to come. So, you know, that's exactly what's on offer in this uh, agreement. Uh, stability, an opportunity to return to a leadership uh, role on behalf of patients, significant protections legally as our charter challenge continues uh, through the, the court uh, system. And, uh, you, you know, this, this, this offer is one that we're uh, trying to inform all of our members about. Uh, we are using every communication channel we can possibly imagine to make sure that uh, members understand uh, the the offer in front of them, and it will be their decision how they vote. I mean, some would say any deal is better than no deal, but I, that's doesn't always. Uh, that's not always a story. I mean, not not every deal is a good deal, and, and so I think a lot of doctors are saying we're not we're not going to budge on this thing, um, and they'll say the the OMA is not negotiating good, in good faith, and hence why we saw the ruling that we saw from the courts. And so, h- have you been negotiating in good faith? Have has the OMA been transparent? We have been trying uh, since uh, unilateral action started, since our last contract uh, lapsed, which is fully two years ago now, to get back to the table to negotiate something on behalf of not just uh, the profession but for the, the patients of this province. And, of course, you know that is what members would expect us to do, and that's, in fact, uh, what we've been doing. I know that some members are disappointed that they weren't you know, informed of every detail along the way, but to guard our charter challenge, our uh, our challenge uh, in the court system that we deserve binding arbitration as a as a profession, we had to uh, have some of those discussions confidentially uh, to guard our legal position. You know, once it became clear that we had an offer that uh, was a reasonable one for members and one that members would want to have a view to and would want to express their opinion with a vote, then we made sure, in fact, that we brought that uh, to members. So where does it go from here, Dr. Wally? I mean, if and I don't suspect that the, the doctors are going to back down on this. Where does it go from here? Well, we're uh, informing all of our members, again, through every uh, way that we can imagine, uh, face-to-face meetings, uh, telephone calls, teleconferences, emails to members, uh, lots of information on our website. We want to make sure that all of our members are 
understanding of what's in the agreement and what isn't. There's a lot of misinformation out there. We want them to be sure that they know what's in the agreement, and we also want them to understand the context in which the uh, board of the OMA is, is making the recommendation for ratification to the members. This is a difficult fiscal environment that we find ourselves in. Uh, we understand uh, that the public uh, understands that fiscal situation and expects our, our profession to do its uh, part on the larger system's uh, behalf and, and in the best interests of patients. So we're providing members with information about the agreement itself, the context in which the decision was made, and then we're asking our members to express uh, their voice uh, in, a, in a democratic way uh, through uh, the uh, voting process that's uh, provided in our bylaws. You're a doctor. I mean, if you were running a clinic today, uh, let's say outside of, uh, you know, in the GTA or in the Hamilton area, would you sign this deal? Do you think it's a good deal? I support this uh, agreement, and I am uh, working to help all of our members understand uh, the agreement and understand the context in which it's being recommended uh, to them. Dr. Wally, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your interest. That's Dr. Virginia Wally. She's the president of the OMA, uh, representing where they're at in this uh, offer and where they believe it needs to go. So let's bring in the other side of the conversation because there is a grassroots group of there of concerned doctors across Ontario that uh, don't like this deal, and they don't believe that it's been negotiated fairly, that there's not been any transparency. And, of course, they look at the court ruling that came out yesterday as a as a pretty substantial, uh, you know, win. Let's bring in Dr. Nadia Alam, who is uh, not just a doctor. Yeah, I think you mentioned that you're an anesthesiologist. You run your own practice, and and you really are part of the foreground and forefront of this fight. Hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Can you hear me okay? I got you loud and clear. <laughs> and by the way, for our listeners, if you want to jump into this conversation, if it's not clear to you of the importance and you want to ask a question, feel free to call. You can always get us at 905-645-3221 or on cell at star 9900. So, Doctor, what, what you know, you heard the interview with the OMA. Uh, Dr. Wally is is suggesting that doc, they've been transparent. They're trying to get the information out there. I know they've spent a lot of money. Uh, putting ads out there. Um, is it sinking in to the doctors? Are they going to sign? I doubt it. Honestly, the, the vast majority of doctors that I've spoken to who have read the contract for themselves agree that the contract's unsustainable. Under this contract, we're going to see more clinic closures and more waitlist ballooning out of control. This contract doesn't fix the problems created from last year. And it will only perpetuate them and worsen them because the government's just not funding enough care. And by enough, I mean measurements, calculated norms and calculated amounts by the Financial Accountability Office and by the OMA's own calculations as well from their own economics department. What the government's offering is simply not enough. And just to keep it keep it simple, stupid, um, you know, two po- well, I have to because it gets so yeah. confusing for listeners. But so I always try to keep it simple, stupid for everybody. But two point five percent is the offer. But, you know, doctors say they need seven percent. And maybe there's somewhere in the middle where we can meet. But, you know, are you seeing more and more doctors come inside? There's what, 40 ish thousand doctors uh, in the province of Ontario. Where would you say we're at as far as for and against this deal? So for one, the 2.5%, um, that is not enough. I don't think that doctors want 
uh, are expecting a personal raise. Like Dr. Wally mentioned, we're conscious of the fact that this government has a debt. So we're not actually looking for a raise. What we're looking for is a wage freeze. 2.5% is a cut. A wage raise would be somewhere between 3 and 5%, depending on what the numbers uh, that the government is looking at and is using. The, so, I mean, that's the, the fiscal responsibility we all bear, right? None mm-hmm. of us can expect a personal raise. And this contract doesn't even offer a freeze. So that's frustrating for a lot of doctors who are trying to pay the rising cost of overhead and the rising patient need showing up at their offices every single day. So you're talking about, you know, clinic, you're talking about rent, you're talking about hydro costs, you're talking about paying staff, uh, all the costs that essentially are associated with running a business. Absolutely. So I'm talking about the chairs that the patients sit on in the waiting rooms, the soap that they use to wash their hands in the bathrooms, the medical equipment at uh, an ophthalmologist's office, uh, the retinal surgery equipment at an ophthalmologist's office, the diagnostic equipment. So uh, at the clinic where I work, in the building where I work, there's a diagnostic department on the first floor. All of that is paid for by the doctors who work there. None of it's paid for by the government. In other words, so if you if your doctor sends you for a test to get blood tests and or urine tests, those kinds of things, those are all shared costs by that particular doctor's office. If it's within the office. Right. If it's at a hospital, that comes through the ministry. That's separate funding from a physician's office. Okay, so where where are we at then, doctor? Uh, because what what's the deadline that you have to sign this deal? And and are do you have an indication that we are at an impasse? I think we are. I think a, a lot of physicians are frustrated because the negotiations, the deal took them totally by surprise. And that there have been some questions about whether or not the negotiations have skipped crucial checks and balances that the OMA hasn't completely mitigated. Like they haven't really settled down those concerns or explained those concerns that well. Aside from that, physicians are looking at this contract and, and they're looking at it in horror. On the one hand, the government's saying, look, look at us. We've got a great economy. Ontario's booming right now. But on the other hand, they're cutting the funding necessary for health care. Well, I, w- I would question what planet they're, they're making that, that, that comparison because <laughs> Ontario's not, I mean, they're spinning in some ways saying, hey, we're doing great. We're going to balance the budget. But then I've got you, you know, explaining to me that, you know, doctors can't afford to run their offices and they're going to be shutting down. So... Somewhere in there lies the truth. I'm not sure, uh, you know, where where to put my money on right now. Well, actually, I am, but uh, I'll try to be fair here. But so where does it go from here? Are, are we looking at, you know, um, escalated uh, work action? Where do we go? I mean, what, what option do doctors have given you cannot strike? I don't think any doctor wants to st- strike, to be honest, because we, we already see patients suffering from lack of access to care. Making it more difficult for patients is is not beneficial for anybody. What we want is the government to give us binding arbitration. That's why the OMA is suing the government for in a charter challenge for binding arbitration because that's that's the kind of uh, dispute resolution. So a strike is one way of re- resolving an impasse. Binding arbitration is another. So we are looking for that kind of dispute resolution to help settle situations like this. Because I mean, to be honest, Alex. Doctors find themselves in this scenario every few years, right? The last time this happened was in 2012. Before that, it happened in the early 2000s. Before that, it happened in the 1990s. We keep 
seeing the same thing over and over again. It's a vicious cycle of government getting into debt and saying, mea culpa, we don't have enough money to fund health care, so we're going to cut the doctors. Because I have no idea why. I'm not sure what doctors have done to deserve this. Well, well, we don't generally hear from doctors. It's the one part of the public sector that kind of always stays quiet. And I mean, I think it's the one area of the public sector that people don't worry about because we all assume doctors make lots of money. So I don't think folks factor in that there are other costs associated and, and doctors aren't necessarily running around, uh, you know, making huge amounts of money. Um, you know, so we hear more about the teachers and the bigger unions going in, making noise, getting their 3% or, or whatever it is that they get. Um, and so most just assume, okay, the doctors must be getting their annual 3% bump as well. I know, and we would hope that they would, that we would. Unfortunately, we haven't seen anything like that since 2008. That was the last time the government funded physicians well. Since then, it's just been cut after cut. And like you noticed, there was room before where we were willing to cut because it didn't affect patient services. You can't we became, know. Yeah, exactly. We became noisy last year because it was affecting patient services. I've only got a minute left, so I want to make sure I get this question in. So what happens next? I mean, you know, is the OMA, the agency, if you can't come to an agreement with them, what happens? Then I think we need to look at what in the OMA is preventing us from getting an agreement. We can't fix the government by ourselves. The public has to hold the government accountable. Um, that's their power. The government should be afraid of the public because they have a responsibility to the people who elected them. The ones who elected them can just as easily tear them down and get put someone else up instead. Um, with the OMA, the OMA is, are, is made up of doctors whom we've elected to represent us. So on a smaller scale, doctors, frontline doctors, rank-and-file doctors, they need to look at the OMA and make it more responsive. That's our job, to make a, an organization that actually responds to members and puts patient care ahead of the government's demands. Maybe That's doctor- willing to say to the government, you yeah. know what, here's our line in the sand. We're willing to accept this much in cuts, but anything more, patient care is too compromised. It's just not worth it. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll watch. I'll continue watching. I've been watching this issue kind of unfold for a while because I talk to my doctors and uh, and I hear about what's going on. If you want more information, folks, you can go to the Facebook page at Concerned Doctors of Ontario or, hey, Dr. Eric Hoskins, he's the health minister. Drop him a line. Uh, get your <laughs> thoughts. Nadia, thank you for calling. And, uh, thank Philly you so much for having me, Alex. That's Dr. Nadia Alam, who's uh, a big part of this grassroots effort. We'll continue to watch because the bottom line is every time you, you know, speak have hard time getting an appointment. You can't, you know, wait in an office for an hour. These are the reasons why it's happening. And if the government's got billions to waste on everything else, you know, can't you put it into something like like this? You know, healthcare. So we'll watch that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Let's do our daily Trump moment, shall we? Um, I'll ask the question. And uh, you can weigh in on this, of course, 905-645-3221 or on your cell at star 9900. Because the question is, is Donald Trump crazy? Does he have a mental health issue? If you believe the media, then yes. So without any medical expertise, the narrative has been created that Trump is erratic, unstable, and now it's all anyone is talking about, including the Democrats. Uh, I can argue about this position or that position. I do that with the current president. Uh, but, but he's inconsistent. And when you're the head 
of a global superpower. Inconsistency, unpredictability, uh, those, those are dangerous things. They, they, they frighten your friends and they tempt your enemies. And, and so I would be very, very concerned. All right. So that was Morning Joe. Um, and, and, you know, their guests saying this is this is their takeaway on Donald Trump. And the Democrats are running with this thing, further reminding people that Trump, who is unstable, would be in charge of nuclear bombs. <laughs> but, you know, I guess it's fair. I mean, wh- whether it's true or or not, whether he's crazy or not, doesn't really matter. I mean, he says whatever comes to his mind. He has zero discipline. So he feeds this narrative. And the polls are starting to really show that he, he could be in trouble. Ten points behind Clinton. And the swing states are starting to fall behind her as well. I mean, look, we have a long, long way to go in this campaign. But, uh, but Trump is, you know, he's fighting an uphill battle. He's on the right. So obviously he's always going to have that uphill battle because the media tends to lean left in the United States. He just does not care. So how on earth does one keep, you know, the crazy train on the tracks? I mean, if you're running his campaign, what on God, how do you control this? How do you manage the unmanageable? We'll talk about this from a couple of different angles, including an angle of, you know, how do you determine if someone might be mentally unstable? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I wanted to start with Michael Diamond because not only are you a mudrucker, self-professed, but you worked on, on, on uh, the Rob Ford campaign, and he was a pretty tough guy to manage, correct? Rob was the toughest and easiest candidate to manage. He was uh, tough because, you know, he certainly was opinionated and stubborn, but he was also just such a natural politician that uh, in many regards he was just great to work with. So uh, definitely comparable to Trump in some ways and completely uh, different in many others. Yeah, look, he was a true outsider. Um, You know, Rob... In my experience of covering him at City Hall over the past 20 years, you know, he was always a fiscally conservative guy, but he wasn't a polished politician. And so you never really knew what to expect because he would just say what was on his mind. But the difference between Rob Ford and Donald Trump is he was manageable. I mean, you could actually he could step in it, but he he could take himself out. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And so he'd sometimes get off on a bit of a tangent, but he remembered that there were a few key reasons why people thought Rob Ford needed to be mayor. Uh, That was, you know, the customer service excellence, stop the gravy train, respect for taxpayers. So no matter where he sort of ended up, he always made sure to pull it into one of those key themes of why he was a candidate for mayor uh, in in the end. So the message would resonate and it uh, would make sense to voters. Trump has failed to do that. It's been a long time, you know, uh, since he got into those race and he needs to really reflect what has worked, what have people cared about. They've cared about the trade deals, they've cared about the jobs, they've cared about uh, fixing border security, and they've cared about making America great again. And uh, every minute that he's not talking about one of those themes, or crooked Hillary, as he calls her, Mm -hmm. he is wasting a very precious minute with uh, 90-something days left. Yeah, look, Rob Ford uh, made Stop the Gravy Train. I mean, it was said every day about a thousand times a day, and it's become part of the vernacular. I mean, it's what we talk about. Um, and, and and it was very, very good. But uh, Donald Trump, for whatever reason, he, he, you know, you could literally throw red paint in the air and he would respond to it. He just doesn't have the filter to be able to say, you know, Hillary Clinton is, is not good for, for America. You know, we're going to make America great. He cannot stay on track. He would rather talk about the red paint. I mean, he just, how do you get him back on track? 
Well, exactly, and that, that's got to be pointed out to him, and who is the proper messenger? No one seems to know because the campaign seems in chaos, but his thin skin is hurting him. Hillary Clinton on Thursday, a week ago today, in her acceptance speech of the Democratic Convention, which i got to say was so boring, I slept in quite late on Friday, uh, that uh, she, she said one thing that really hit me at the time was a man who can be baited with a tweet is not a man you can trust with the nuclear codes or something to that effect. Donald Trump has doubled down and showed how easy it is to bait him since then. It's been the worst week of the campaign for him since that time, uh, or sorry, since since his entry, and uh, it really proves Clinton correct, which is a problem. So the Trump campaign and Donald Trump needs to analyze, why did I get in this race? Why did people care when I got in this race? Why did folks in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Florida and throughout the country, 38 states, turn out to vote for me in a primary in a uh, party that I'm not really a part of? what do I do to get back there? And that is returning to the key messages, make America great again, and everything that falls under there. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation that his campaign's in trouble, that he's simply ignoring people. I mean, they have had uh, some of the top guys, Newt Gingrich, uh, Rudy Giuliani, they've tried to get them to come in, I guess, and and speak to him. Uh, But what's it going to take, like an intervention? Because look, this stuff flies in a primary. You can get away with stuff in a primary, but you can't get away with it during a campaign. Well, you know, I don't know that Donald Trump would have gotten away with this in the primary. He's just become so much worse, uh, frankly. Uh, and the media scrutiny is, of course, there's instead of 16 candidates on his side, there's two candidates. So that certainly makes it a bit more tricky compared to the primary. But he seems to be more um, performing much more poorly than he was during the primary. So perhaps it, it gets back to you know something that uh, people speculated about when he got in. Is he a Clinton plant? So is, is, he, is he throwing this on purpose? I think that's probably nonsense. I think these are long things. Hillary Clinton has been through four races for president, where she's either been the candidate or the spouse of a candidate. She gets this as a marathon. Donald Trump sprinted through this, perhaps, and it's uh, the wear and tear is starting to catch up on him in his first political campaign. Yeah, Michael, uh, stay on the line with me because I want to bring Peter into this conversation. Peter, where are you on this? Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm good. I would just like to make one comment. The other day when uh, this uh, Trump, uh, he said that the election, if he doesn't win, uh, the election is, it was rigged. Is that not what he said? He did, yes. Okay. So, he said a lot of things since then, but yes, that's yeah, one of the okay, things he that, said. That, that made me chuckle. Uh, because it sounds like he's already making excuses uh, if he if he loses. Like if he loses, he, he's uh, he's definitely going to say yes because I lost because it was rigged. Now if he wins, is he going to say yes I won because it was rigged? No. What he'll say is I won and it was rigged, and so therefore I'm superhuman strength. Oh, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> who knows what he'll say, but uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it seems to be working. Thanks for your call, Peter. But Michael, uh, um, you know, he says these kind of outlandish things. Everyone's expecting him to pivot. Can he then come back? Because you know, quite frankly, uh, Hillary's getting a free ride right now, and some of the stuff that comes out against her with this nuclear, uh, or the, sorry, this payment to the Iranians, which is a much bigger story, uh, the email links uh, of, of, against Bernie Sanders, all these things are very damaging, but they're not sticking to her. Instead, they just keep throwing the uh, the red paint for, for Donald Trump to, to comment on. Well, exactly. They're just throwing lumber into the fire that is uh, Donald Trump. So the Clinton campaign has had probably, arguably, its best week uh, of this entire uh, election cycle. And I don't recall the last thing she said. 
Yeah. So I mean, this is working out very well for Hillary Clinton. She she her, she's had she should be having a bad week because of the, the Iranian deal, the emails, her comments, uh, which are were falsely uh, were flatly false on the Sunday shows last week. Uh, again, Hillary Clinton making false statements. Not a surprise for anyone. No one's paying attention because Donald Trump has sucked up all of the oxygen, and there's plenty of bad oxygen that should be belonging to Hillary Clinton right now. Is it possible, I mean, this far into it, that we could see a replacement candidate? I mean, could Rudy Giuliani or one of the senior guys go, you know what, you got to go? Uh, you know, again, I mean, Trump could be uh, persuaded to drop out. And again, there's 50 uh, sets of ballot access rules. So it's a bit easier being within a party than setting up a third party run. Um, but again, it would it would vary 50 states to 50 states. But it is important to remember uh, the founders in their wisdom, this was done for very bad reasons at the time to keep regular folk from selecting the president. But there is no direct election of the presidency in the United States. So for the most part, most states, uh, the electors are selected, and they can show up to vote at the state houses when the Electoral College convenes in, I believe it's December, and vote for whomever they choose. So you, you could see something like that where, you know, Donald Trump's name may be on the ballot in some states, may not. If, if he was to be pushed out, this is highly unlikely. And electors who are on the Republican electoral elector slate would be you know, have sort of an agreement, they would vote for candidate X for president and candidate Y for vice president. Amazing times. Amazing times. Uh, Michael, thank you. Thank you. That is Michael Diamond, who uh, has been behind the scenes. And and look, he was in a campaign with Rob Ford and kept that crazy, crazy train on the tracks. And so he knows a lot about what he speaks. I'm going to uh, go to Jim for a quick comment before I get to my next uh, guest. Hey, Jim. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Today? I'm good, thanks. Where are you on this? Well, I love the fact that Trump entered the race last June because he mixed up politics Mm -hmm. the same way in which Bernie mixed up politics. But during the Republican convention, when his eldest son came to speak, a lot of commentators said, why isn't his son running? (laughs) Yeah. Yep. If Trump just kept his mouth shut to a certain extent, and I heard two commentaries. One was, don't be the quarterback who's yelling at the fan in the stands, booing you. And the other one was a poll done by Real Time Live, watching the conventions with Democrats. They were all undecided. One-third was pro-Democrat, one-third was pro-Republican. And even when Trump spoke of positive values and positive towards the United States, economically, security, whatever, as long as it was a positive message, he won over the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So I think he just needs, and part of his appeal is that he doesn't have handlers. I think he needs a couple of handlers because this is now the pro league, right? He's not just running for the primary, he's running for the big show, right? I think he needs some professional people next to him. Well, he well he does, Jim, and thank you. Uh, you point out some great things. Um, but he does. He has a lot of handlers around him. It's whether or not he's listening. I have a feeling Ivanka and the kids are going to have to sit down with Dad and say, Dad, you got to zip it. Just stop. Stay on focus. Make America great and go after Clinton's record. Because that's really all this guy has to do. But it's either, you know, I'll tell you this. His campaign rallies are enormous enormous. He gets thousands of people to his campaign rallies. So we could all be very, very wrong about this thing. And he may just be the genius that we don't understand. And he has turned this thing on its head. Like I said, 
I, I don't know what's going on here, but I know that there's something working for him, but the media is working very much against him. But when I, when I heard this notion about, oh, he's mentally unfit, what an amazing narrative to go on against someone because it would be pretty difficult to undo that. So I thought I'd bring in Oren Amate, who's a uh, registered psychologist, uh, to talk about how how is it that you can declare somebody is unstable? Hi, Oren. Hi. Uh, well, um, the public cannot. I mean, they can say whatever they want, but that's not going to hold any but water. But the media is doing it. Right. I mean, it was a Toronto Star reporter who started the narrative about him being mentally unstable. It was a, a Dale, uh, Darren Dale, I cannot remember his name. Dan, Daniel Dale. Daniel Dale, who said, is he mentally unstable? And then all of a sudden, it, the narrative started. And I thought, okay, what what are we basing this on? It was just opinions around the town. And I thought, okay, so this is how we do it now? Right. Well, I've got to be clear, because uh, ethically speaking, I have to say I've never assessed the man, so yeah. I can only you know speak from a distance from what I've seen and uh, related to... Uh, what I know with my own assessments and patients. And, uh, you know, people have been throwing around this term psychotic, and that's a term that always gets my back up because uh, people conflate or confuse psychotic with psychopath. And, um, you know, and so someone like Vince Lee, he's the man, unfortunately, who uh, murdered Tim McLean on the Greyhound bus, cut off his head, and started eating his, you know, eating his eyes. That was psychotic. He lost complete touch with reality. When you talk about someone being mentally unstable or psychotic, you're basically saying they don't have a grasp on reality. And so, for people to say that about, um, you know, about Donald Trump, uh, you know, I think he is. There's no evidence that I've seen that he's psychotic. Okay. Right. But, but OK, so I interviewed a psychologist who had written a book on narcissism, and this was like about a year ago. Right. Uh, and, and Donald Trump's name came into it. And he said, oh, yes, he is a narcissist, which I'm like, OK, who in politics isn't a narcissist? <laughs> There'd be a few of them. Well, and that's where we can, you know, and that's where we can talk about personality disorders. And again, I haven't assessed them, so I can only describe behaviors and how they look like narcissism. There's different degrees of narcissism and there's different types of narcissism. There's, you know, several dozen types of narcissism. Um, but if people want to understand it, what they really have to understand is someone who's a narcissist, A, it's all about themselves, okay? They, they don't see other people's perspectives. Uh, they don't care about other people's perspectives. Uh, B, they are emotionally stunted. They are, you know, they stop developing emotionally like as a child. So we see them acting very often like a child, throwing temper tantrums, saying things that aren't true, saying things that could get them in trouble, not planning ahead, you know, just living in the moment without any thought of consequence. And, you know, hate to say it, but Donald Trump has been, you know, he's been uh, exemplifying that. (laughs) I think would be generous. Uh, Let me bring Frank into the conversation because he may have a question for you. Hi, Frank. Thanks for calling in. Hi. It's always listening to you. Uh, I want to mention one thing to you, Alex, that you seem to be really knocking uh, Clinton down the wire a lot. And we don't, um, I don't know, the popularity of Trump seems to be slipping. But you know what really uh, uh, caused me um, quite a bit of perplexity is when the right at the beginning of both conventions, the Democrats only surfaced two, Bernie Sanders and Hillary, whereas the Republicans, first, you saw how many they had. Sixteen. And and Trump was not even a confirmed Republican at the time. Mm -hmm. But the point is, the Democratic Party must have some great faith in Hillary Clinton and also Sanders in that they only position those two people up front. So what I'd like to see in the minds of the public now and us people is, let's put aside this... um, these little trivial, maybe they're not trivial. I'm using the wrong word there. The, the, the episodes about uh, Clinton's past. Don't forget, she was under the administration of 
Obama, uh, of yep. Obama, who she contested as being uh, going for president the last time. So there's got to be some disagreements there, and maybe she had to just follow through to some degree what he endorsed and the people around him. So she entirely responsible for everything that you want to put her in the dirty wash for. Yep. The other part is that she has the qualifications. Let's just look at raw qualifications as a being the Secretary of State, going to uh, 112 countries that she had liaisons with. And what has Trump got? He's got nothing. He, as a matter of fact, much of what I watch, and I watch a fair bit of it, he has said nothing on how he's going to do things, what his plan is, other than just ridicule her and, and, and even people that, uh, like that one incident with the baby. First he loves babies, and now he, all of a sudden he doesn't love babies. I mean, yeah. that was an insult to that lady big time. It was, Frank. Uh, and thank I, you. Cause I think, I'm, I'm going to have to get back to the doctor because he's uh, he's uh, waiting on that line and I, I only have about a minute left. But but here's a short answer to, to your question. Uh, the Democrats are a well-oiled machine and uh, she is the chosen one that they wanted to run. The email link leaks show that. Um, and they are setting traps for Donald Trump that he is silly and stupidly falling into. And so my question to you, uh, Orrin, would be, you know, um, you know, when did it be okay to then just kind of throw around these terms like he's mentally unstable? Because that, to me, for the politically correct, would be very, very, uh, you know, politically incorrect. Yeah, well, I don't think we should be throwing around terms like mentally unstable and um, and connecting, again, personality issues with real mental health issues. That just muddies the water. Um, it just contributes to the stigma that we're trying to reduce. And I think we have to be very careful about delineating terms yeah. such as, again, a personality disorder versus like a, again, a psychotic disorder or mentally unstable because people who are truly mentally unstable usually deserve sympathy and empathy, whereas someone has a personality disorder, you should run from them because uh, depending on what type of personality disorder, but if it's narcissistic, if it's sociopathic or psychopathic, you know, you got to run because they will ruin your life. Yeah, interesting. Thanks so much for joining us. And of course, if you want right, to uh, read up on what uh, Orrin Amate is saying, you can get him at docamate.com. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.